I think there's blame on both sides, and I have no doubt about it, and you don't have any doubt about it either. President Trump said today what he really believes happened in Charlottesville. Once in front of the reporters, the president, quote, went rogue. But you had many people in that group other than neo-Nazis and white nationalists, okay? And the press has treated them absolutely unfairly. What Trump did today was a moral disgrace. There aren't multiple sides into neo-Nazism. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. It was one of the biggest messes that I've ever seen. I can't believe it happened. Diminishing the presidency, the country, and himself. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. Oh my, Heather. Where do we begin this week? You know, I was horrified this weekend in ways that I have not been in memory. Watching neo-Nazis and white supremacists march in Charlottesville, Virginia. I went to the University of Virginia. I lived on the lawn. People walking with torches down the lawn. Talking about killing Jews. I'm a Jew. <laughs> white supremacists taking over the town. A woman dying. So many people injured. Suddenly Charlottesville, which is a place that's deep in my heart, is a symbol. A symbol for us becoming unglued. For things that, well, I guess I thought we had at least significantly managed these elements in American life. They had been pushed under a rock. Took a while, took effort to get them out of the public place. And they come roaring back. The death of Heather Heyer, the injury of so many people, a car plowing into a crowd of counter-protesters. And then the president of the United States speaking the song of false equivalency. They are all equal in some moral calculus. His inability to condemn in the strongest terms these groups that marched on Charlottesville with swastika armbands, anti-Semitic and racist chants, and his attempt to compare them on the same moral plane with the counter-protesters. Look, we call the show Freak Out and Carry On. I am trying not to freak out in a way that I leap out of my chair and start screaming, running down the street. Heather, help me. Give me context. Exhale on our behalf. Historically, what are we seeing? How should we look at this moment? Well, this is the moment. This is the moment that has been coming since at least Brown v. Board of Education for the last 70 years, 80 years. This is the moment when two generations, three generations of Americans are forced to choose what they stand for. Do we stand for American principles of justice and equality before the law and equality of opportunity, or do we stand for what Nazis stand for? And I will actually help you carry on on this front because while I was as aghast by, aghast 
by Charlottesville, and even more so in a way by the president's press conference that followed it, where the the just deep rage in our leader was ripped free for everybody to see. While I, I, I stood watching both of those things, I didn't ever, ever sit watching them, I stood the whole way through them. What it what struck me was that I was so impressed, as I always am, by Americans standing up and saying no. When the KKK marched through Washington, D.C. in the 1920s, people weren't standing up against them. They were standing up for them. This time around, people were standing up and saying, no, this is not what we stand for. And I want to say that name again. Heather Heyer died for those principles. And that's a name I think we are all going to be remembering. I actually feel better about America right now than I have in decades because we see it and we are saying no. We're no longer looking the other way and pretending that this side of America isn't there. We're recognizing that it's there and we're saying that's not who we are and that's not who we want to be going forward. Now is the time we choose. We've talked about this before, the calling of the question. Uh, Joining us this week, we have a terrific guest, Randall Kennedy, professor at Harvard Law School, author of, among many things, The Persistence of the Caroline Racial Politics and the Obama Presidency. Welcome, Randy. Thank you very much. Well, give us your thoughts. You, oh, you have gone neck deep in so many of these issues of the original sin of racism in America, slavery. What is your reaction, your initial reaction to what happened in Charlottesville, to the president's response, his back and forth? Uh, what does it look like through your eyes? We are in an horrific moment. What happened, the violence... The lethal violence was, of course, terrible. The response by the President of the United States was just absolutely egregious. It was terrible. It was um, disheartening. I do think that the point that was just made, that we, we, we ought not overlook the people who are resisting, the people who are out in the street, the people who say, no, let's love one another, not hate one another. Uh, I think it's a mistake if we empower the, uh, the Nazis and the Klansmen by exaggerating their influence. Having said that, at this particular moment, we are led by a president of the United States Who's, who, who, who ran a campaign uh, that was, you know, animated by bigotry, to tell you the truth. I mean, there's just no, way, no, no other way to put it. I mean, you think of the, the big lie of Obama having been born abroad. You are not allowed to be a president if you're not born in this country. He may not have been born in this country. And I'll tell you what, three weeks ago, I thought he was born in this country. Right now, I have some real doubts. The fact of the matter is Nazis have been part of American life. The Klan has been part of American life. Racism has been part of American life for decades and decades and decades. What is different, though, is a president of the United States who was showing some degree of sympathy for it. That is new, and that is absolutely disturbing. I'm seeing a lot of talk, which I think is overblown, by the way, but a lot of talk about a coming civil war. You know, what do you think? Is that a possibility or, or is there some way that we really can bring together the great majority of Americans who don't have any interest in either the far left or the far right? I don't see a civil war, but uh, 
that doesn't give me a lot of comfort. We live in a society in which, for the first time in a long time, rank racism is being openly shown. I mean, one of the things that's striking about what's going on, we're talking about groups. One group is wearing swastikas. Now, the Third Reich declared war on the United States. And then the other people are going around cheering the Confederacy, which also declared war on the United States. I mean, well, to go back to your question about, you know, civil war, maybe I'm contradicting myself. I mean, the fact of the matter is, when you have people who can align themselves with such hatefulness and get an equivocal, at best equivocal, maybe I'm giving them too much you know, I'm deferring to him too much, but even an equivocal response to that is something that is shameful and disgraceful and should cause alarm. So, Randy, you are a noted optimist on the direction of America, certainly on issues of race, and I I wonder how you feel. I know the election probably was a bit of a surprise, but what about now? What do you see looking forward? Um, my views have changed. I still count myself in the optimistic camp. I think that we shall overcome. But I've had to recalibrate things. I did not think, I did not think that I would see unvarnished, overt, unapologetic racism burst out and obtain sympathy from the highest circles of the American government. I did not think that I would see that. It is making me revise some things I've written. Um, I, I am in a more somber mood than I have been, frankly, ever well, in my it, life. Well, it is worth pointing out that right now, even before the press conference early in this week, the president enjoyed a disapproval rating of 61 percent. I mean, that's that speaks back to your point about not overestimating the the, the mm -hmm. people. Still about thirty five percent approval. approval. Right. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. I, I do want to say, though, it is important to recognize what's characteristic and what's marginal. And in honor, for instance, that woman who was killed. Heather Heyer. Yes. The, the statement on, on that she made, her last statement on Facebook, um, if you're not outraged, you haven't been paying attention. Hmm. Well, she, as far as I'm concerned, this is my hope, and I think it's a realistic hope, she is characteristic. The people who are upset and in their upsetment are talking to one another, what should we do? They're debating. Different people have different ideas. They know something's not right, and they're seeking a way forward, a way upwards. I think that that is what's characteristic about this country, and that's where our hope resides, even in this dark moment. You know, Randy, one of the, the questions that comes up again and again is, is uh, does a display like this, a moment like this, provide an avenue in which these hateful and often hidden feelings are aired in public and sunlight, and there to be disinfected, there to be seen, 
uh, and responded to? Or is there a side of this, the other side, that they as well may act as an encouragement, as a kind of come hither, as a dog whistle that creates more of their numbers of the haters? This is something we've debated for years on these issues of race. Speak to me. There's no doubt. I mean, the, the, the neo-Nazis and the Klan's people are very happy about what's been going on. Their leaders are on the news. They're getting lots of publicity. They're, they're getting a platform that they haven't gotten in many decades. So that the notion that they're being encouraged, oh, sure, they're being encouraged. That There is that. At the same time, it's also true that we are seeing, in a very straightforward way, uh, aspects of American life that all too many people seek to deny. Well, there's no denying it now, and it probably is a useful thing to face it straightforwardly and say, what are we going to do about this? You know, I've been watching the talk shows, and periodically one of the hosts uh, will say to one of the panelists, and they come in every stripe, of course, uh, will you call Trump a racist? And most of them duck it. Oh, I'll call him a racist. And I... and not 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 difficult. And by the way, and I don't and I stay away. It takes a lot for me to call someone racist. I think you, you before you call someone racist because it is a very it should be a very stigmatizing label. And before you stigmatize somebody like that, you ought to have real evidence. Unfortunately, we've got Lots of evidence. And, and the question now is, will what you're saying be the kind of thing that does spread? Because I think right now folks are saying, well, maybe I should use the R word here. Let's call him a racist. And what does it mean for a, a significant portion of the population to openly call the president of the United States a racist? The most interesting thing to me was the fact that many of the young men who were captured on film in Charlottesville, screaming, often with neo-Nazi insignia on them, then went public and said, that wasn't me, I'm not really a racist. I, the fact that people are distancing themselves from this, it seems to me, is, is significant. You know, I do think we're on a knife edge right now, but I still have faith in the American people that they really do believe that this is not the, what America stands for. And by the way, we have been fed not only on the idea that the Confederacy destroyed, fought to destroy America, but also every villain in film since World War II has been a Nazi, right down to Harrison Ford as um, Indiana Jones. So the idea that somebody's going to say, oh, I've got a great idea, I'm a good American, I'm going to be a Nazi, I'm not sure that's – I really don't think that's going to sell. Yeah, I, one of the, the little bleeps in the news cycle was that report of this American in Germany – uh, doing a, a Heil Hitler salute and getting the crap beaten out of him by a German. I, I think that's really crucial because you look at the Germans since World War II, and this has been a part of my education. As a Jew, I was raised saying, oh, no, you know, my dad wouldn't buy a Mercedes, that kind of thing. But, you know, I've known many Germans at this point from Germany, and you look at how they did truth and reconciliation in that country across many decades and what that society now looks like. They said, we're going to go right at the hardest truths, look at them with a cold eye and and open ourselves to the pain, and we will thereby evolve. And the question is, are we maybe 
crossing into that realm now in terms of some of these issues that have long bubbled under the surface. Randy and I are looking the exact same way we're going to talk about later on the Confederate monuments. That The fact that the Confederate monuments have now been equated with neo-Nazism, which is new, which is new, is is a crucial moment. This is the week. This is the week in American history that every that that everything changes. Maybe that's an equivalency we can embrace. Okay, before we go there, let's talk for a minute about the GOP, the Republican Party. And let's listen to then presidential candidate George W. Bush talking to the NAACP National Convention back in 2000. In the darkest days of the Civil War, President Lincoln pleaded to our divided nation to remember that we cannot escape history, that we will be remembered in spite of ourselves. 140 years later, that's still true. For our nation, there is no denying the truth that slavery is a blight on our history, and that racism, despite all the progress, still exists today. For my party, there is no escaping the reality that the party of Lincoln has not always carried the mantle of Lincoln. Heather, race and the Republican Party, from Lincoln to Bush to Trump, draw some historical parallels for us here. Well, first of all, let's start with that wonderful quotation, we cannot escape history. You know, that's worth remembering in this week. We cannot escape history. Abraham Lincoln said that line after he had issued the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation in September of 1862 and had gotten shellacked in the midterm elections after that in November. And he went before Congress and he said, listen, if you don't want this, okay. You know, I I, I see what you're saying with this election, which actually was about a lot of things. but, But really... We have got to face the issue of slavery. We have got to face the issue of emancipation. Fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. This is the way the world is going to the concept of human self-determination, and we can no longer hold slaves in this country and expect to win this civil war and expect to continue as the United States that he was trying to defend so thoroughly. That, I think, is still here because what Lincoln believed in and what he stood for and what the Republican Party during the 1860s stood for and what it formed to do in the 1850s was, in fact, to defend the concept that every man, they were only talking about men in that period, but that every man had the right to equality of opportunity and to self-determination. And those principles are at stake today even still. Randy, you know, one of the questions that comes up again and again is the self-correcting qualities and features of American democracy. And and could this be the start of a powerful swing? Because people are seeing clearly who they are not or, or who they do not want to be. Two points. One, I don't like the idea of you know, inexorable, automatic self-correction. No. We are on a knife's edge. We could go in a worse direction. Could go either way. Uh, It's going to be people who are going to have to take action, working with other people to push our society to a better place. We can't just count on some pendulum swing. Mm -hmm. That's one point. Second, you were asking about the Republican Party, We were just hearing about the 19th century. You know, I was born in 1954. In the 1950s, 
And indeed, until the middle of the 1960s, there, was, there were a lot of black people that were, you know, in the Republican Party or voting for, my parents voted for, for Eisenhower. I grew up in a, in a household, I mean, we were, we were Democrats, but we certainly were attentive to a goodly number of uh, Republicans. We did not see Republicans necessarily as, you know, the enemies of, of, of black people. People ought to remember that the Republican Party, which is now basically, certainly with respect to presidential politics, a, a white man's party, a white people's party, that's only 1964, Barry Goldwater coming out against the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and then subsequently. But for much of the 20th century, the Republican Party had strong, relatively strong uh, backing from blacks, at least blacks who could vote. Now, I mean, you know, uh, black people in the South were disenfranchised, but among blacks who could vote, especially with respect to presidential politics, the whitening, the white monopoly with respect to the Republican Party is a relatively new phenomenon. Question, can something be done about that? There's no doubt about it. The evolution of the Republican Party from the 40s or the 50s, as Randy points out, many Eisenhower Republicans among African Americans takes a turn uh, in the 1960s with the Southern strategy carried forward by Nixon and Roger Ailes and his team. And you see Republicans since then coming into the more modern period struggling with this. You know, George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, uh, Ronald Reagan, for that matter, saying I'm kind of standing on an axis here, divided uh, with one foot here and one foot there. Many of my constituents are folks with very strong feelings, especially in the South, about race. I want to keep them aboard. And at the same time, I am of the party of Lincoln. Uh, we're hearing some of that in this sort of rather complex little offering from George W. Bush, where he summons Lincoln and talks about the woes of the nation and also the woes of his party. Uh, Randy, Heather, stand by. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back. I want to add another voice to our conversation. Tony Horowitz, author of, among other things, Confederates in the Attic, Dispatches from the Unfinished Civil War, a book he wrote in the 90s that is so unbelievably prescient, not just the title, the whole damn thing. And also Midnight Rising, John Brown and the Raid that Sparked the Civil War. Tony, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, Tony is also my roommate from Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. I've known this man my entire life, and this is your moment, Tony. <laughs> well, I, I, can I respond first to some of what you've been saying? No, no. Dive in, buddy. Dive in. All right. Well, I hate to ever agree with you, Ron, but <laughs> I was really struck by what you said about whether this will you know, be a moment that has disinfecting value by exposing this racism, or is it a come-hither moment for white supremacists? And I think it could be both. Like ISIS uh, that, you know, publicized its atrocities, I think what happened in Charlottesville might sadly draw new recruits to the cause. 
but I think it it's also been a disinfecting moment because I think like images in the 1960s of police and dogs and hoses being deployed against civil rights protesters. Going forward, the rebel flag and Confederate symbols in general will be indelibly tainted with neo-Nazism and everything that comes with it. So I I agree also with Heather that this is a real watershed moment. Uh, I, I think this really changes the landscape. Tony, I want to play a clip of Trump for you as a a little offering. I think uh, it's one of the key moments. You had people in that group that were there to protest the taking down of, to them, a very, very important statue and the renaming of a park from Robert E. Lee to another name. George Washington was a slave owner. Was George Washington a slave owner? So will George Washington now lose his status? Are we going to take down, excuse me, are we going to take down, are we going to take down statues to George Washington? How about Thomas Jefferson? What do you think of Thomas Jefferson? You like him? Okay, good. Are we going to take down the statue? Because he was a major slave owner. Now we're going to take down his statue. So you know what? It's fine. You're changing history. You're changing culture. Yeah, Tony, I heard that, and I said, I got to get Tony on the phone. Okay, so what is going through your head when you are hearing Trump do this riff? Well, I mean, this is the classic slippery slope argument that, you know, you kick open this door to taking down monuments and attacking, you know, age-old icons, and, and where does it end? I guess what I would say in response is I'm not one to stick up for Washington and Jefferson. Um, They were slave owners, but that's uh, not the only reason we remember them. Uh, Robert E. Lee would not be on the many monuments he is if he had not been leader of the Confederacy. Likewise, the others who are honored, and you can't disassociate them from the lost cause, which was defense of slavery. So uh, I, you know, I think he makes a somewhat valid point. I mean, if we are going to open that door, we do have to question really the first, you know, 70, 80 years of, of U.S. history when slavery was legal, when slaveholders occupied the White House, when the American flag flew over a nation in which slavery was legal. But I don't think it should be an excuse for not addressing these specific monuments. Well, look, look, this is a moment where I think some people felt a little sting. Uh, We've seen this in the academy, in a lot of universities, saying, no, no, that person honored with his building, with his plaque, they're out of here. Kill it. You know, and people say, well, those are those times. You, You can't have these people living 200 years ago judged by the standards of today. And people say, look, that's fine. Make that argument. I want the plaque down. That person is a villain in my mind as an American, and I am going to bring judgment today based on our standards and our mores. That, that's kind of what Trump is, is you know, getting into here. I just, I just here. have to jump in on this. Yep. The Confederates tried to destroy the United States of America. They were traitors who tried to destroy this country. Now, the founding no one's, fathers... No one's disputing, founding, no one's disputing that. But look, listen, the founding Martha fathers... Min, Martha Minow, the dean of Harvard Law School, was somebody I know very well. Randy does too. And Martha was put through hell, as was all of Harvard Law School in this past year. 
you know, that's a little bit of a of a whiff of what Trump is is getting close to here. Yeah, but but well, let Randy talk about that for a second. I think symbols can mean many different things, and I, in my view, and describe the Harvard Law School controversy. Well, at, at, at my school, the controversy was over the shield, which was the emblem of the law school. It was a shield that was bequeathed to the Harvard Law School by a slave-owning family, the royal family. They were slave traders and slave owners. That was their name. They weren't the royal family. Their last name was Royal. Their, their name, yes. That's right. They're, they're, they were named Royal, yes. Right. And there was a big to-do about it, and it was repudiated finally. Now, one thing that's sort of interesting, very distinguished uh, historian, Annette Gordon-Reed, actually dissented. Annette Gordon-Reed said, listen, I'd like to keep the emblem in order for us to remember the slaves. Mm. I want to keep the emblem to remember the slaves. Wow. And, you know, there are other people as well. I could imagine somebody saying, taking the following position, no, let's don't tear down the monuments. Let's not, let's not engage in subtraction. Let's engage in addition. Instead of tearing, let's keep the monuments where they are. That's part of history. Fine. Let's bring in all these people who have been rendered invisible, women, racial minorities, others. I was just in Berlin, and there's monuments all over Berlin that are used in exactly this way. We should have a thoroughgoing discussion. Frankly, yes, let's talk about George Washington. I'm not, I'm not you know, afraid of talking about the status of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Lincoln, or whomever. Racism is a very deep part of American society, and it has surfaced everywhere, and we need to grapple with that. Where we ultimately come out is unclear. I'm sure that, you know, different people have different positions. Reasonable people can reach different conclusions. What I don't like, what is, as far as I'm concerned, terrible, is a sort of thoughtless quality which is yet another feature of our president's discussion about this yesterday, as if one could, it's as if it would be thoughtless to say, you know, yeah, let's, let's talk about Washington. Let's talk about Jefferson. And the fact of the matter is, with respect to Washington and Jefferson, yes, there has been a recalibration of their image and of their status in American life in light of people taking seriously the fact that, yes, they were slave owners. And by the way, at the very time that they were slave owners, there were people who were abolitionists. There were people who recognized the humanity of black people. So let's not either fall into the notion of, well, that was long ago and everybody viewed black people as being, you know, below a the... A widely and well-known myth that we kill off by having this discussion. I mean, this is part of what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, How do you I'm, kill off these toxic but, myths? But wait, wait. Those men were flawed, as are all human beings, and they had a set of principles that established this nation. And yes, we have to grapple with that. If we start to requiring them to be perfect, we're going to have to take down every statue in America because there isn't or almost no men who were on statues who believed in equal rights for women. So if we're going to start mm -hmm. sanitizing things, we're left with no, with no heroes. But that is different than the Confederate monuments, and they must be contextualized or gotten rid of because they tried to destroy this country. Uh, Tony, let's go right to these monuments. You, you are a leading expert on the use of symbol or misuse of it. 
uh, in terms of the Civil War. Walk us through the evolution of what these monuments have meant and now mean. Well, it's a long story. I'll try and boil it down that after the Civil War, this uh, mythology grew up in the South, uh, attempted essentially to rewrite history and say that uh, the Confederate cause was not about slavery. It was about defense of sovereignty against northern aggression and federal tyranny, uh, and that the war was lost, but the cause was right and somehow blameless. Um, I guess I would, you know, I I might take the Annette Gordon-Reed view, though, that it's worth preserving this history as history, uh, a history of a horrible moment in America when these monuments went up, uh, mostly in the late 19th and early 20th century at at the height of of segregation and lynching and in a period, you know, in the heart of Jim Crow America as bold statements of white supremacy. And I I guess, you know, it's for every community to decide, but I, I think there's an argument to be made that rather than tear these monuments down and and sweep this history under the carpet, that we need to remember it and, yes, reinterpret, contextualize, uh, addition in any way we can to explain the mindset that, that created these monuments. On the question of history, never has there been an indication, a showing of how important history is. We're talking about the Confederacy and we're talking, people ought to simply read what the various states said. Go to my home state of South Carolina. You can see why the Confederates seceded from the Union. They say in no uncertain terms, it's about slavery. We, if, if people simply knew just, you know, just facts about, about the Confederacy, a lot of this would be clarified, actually. And a lot of the myths can only exist in a context of ignorance. Yeah, and it shows how it sh- what's been going on, so much of the discussion shows us how dangerous ignorance is. You know, Tony, uh, in the recent years, uh, there has been a turn here. I mean, Dylan Roof murdering those nine African-Americans in Charleston in 2015 in the hopes of sparking a race war, that was part of this process we're talking about. That was a turning point. Take us through that. uh, An even bigger one, and and my view is that the you know, the supremacy, white supremacists in Charlottesville are, are completing the, the demolition work that Dylan Roof began. It was really that moment at which pe- people finally stood up and said, enough. And, and we're talking white Southerners here in South Carolina, the, the cradle of secession that for decades had been cowed by this so-called heritage movement that tried to dress up the Confederacy as, as a somehow benign worship of, of ancestors. And at that moment, it really turned. And I think what's remarkable about the last week's events is that it's reignited that movement. And in my view, really, you know, is the, the final nail in the coffin for this lost cause remembrance. I, I think the monuments are not going to come down everywhere, but... I think the tide has has really turned. 
I hope that you're correct. On the other hand, when Dylan Roof committed his atrocity, you did not have a president of the United States who was equivocating about the nature of what he had done, the nature of the forces that he represented. Now we do have a president of the United States with the considerable power of the presidency behind him that is equivocating. Well, let's draw a line of distinction here. I mean, uh, Obama was there. He did stand up. Reverend Pickman once said, across the South, we have a deep appreciation of history. We haven't always had a deep appreciation of each other's history. What is true in the South is true for America. Clem understood that justice grows out of recognition of ourselves in each other. That my liberty depends on you being free too. That, that history can't be a sword to justify injustice or a shield against progress, but must be a manual for how to avoid repeating the mistakes of the past, how to break the cycle, a roadway toward a better world. It was one of his great moments mm-hmm. of leadership, I think people generally thought. Now we have, one, one might contend, the opposite. Is that going to send a signal that people mayors, governors, others need to step up. I mean, it's happening already. That's true. You know, you know, there's Saddam Hussein moments where statues are being pulled down in cities in, in the, the middle of the night. Yeah. yeah. And in, they're talking about it now in Lexington and, and Jacksonville. I may be wrong. I mean, one should never count the Confederacy out. It has this way of always coming back from the dead. And, you know, rebels don't... Uh, turn the other cheek, but I, I, I think for all but the, the fringe, this glorification of the lost cause is, you know, it, it's in its death throes. You know, watching the, the mob with its torches walk down that lawn was a, a cathartic and harrowing moment for me. You know, look at what that is, that beautiful... Elysian Place, the the rotunda, the lawn built by Jefferson. He considers that his greatest achievement, the creation of the University of Virginia. You know, and it's built on principles, enlightenment principles that are at the foundation of the country. The idea of individual rights, the primacy of that individual to live free, free of madness and suspicion, of power having its prerogatives. Able, as Jefferson says so beautifully in his signature quote, if if Jefferson was here, I think this is the one he would summon. For here, we are not afraid to follow truth wherever it may lead, nor tolerate any error, so long as reason is left free to combat it. It is inscribed on the pillar at the University of Virginia on that lawn, 1820, that is at the core of what is not only at stake, but what has time and again saved us, often against our better judgments and will.
What a moment. Uh, Tony Harwitz, uh, great to have you here on the show, man. We have to have great. you back. Great to be here. Randy Kennedy, a joy. And thank you for your deep insights. Thank uh, you. Heather Kotz-Richards and Heather, thank you. Always good to be here. I'm Ron Susskind. and this is Freak Out and Carry On. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FreakOutCarryOn. Visit our website at WBUR.org slash FreakOut. Our email address is FreakOutAndCarryOn at WBUR.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.